Hey out there, rock and rollers. Welcome to episode number 59 of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast, recorded here in central London, just off historic Abbey Road. We appreciate everybody who tuned into our show on Van Halen's debut record, a record that really kind of changed the world of rock and roll guitar forever, changed the lives of a couple of young rock and rollers from the United States who discovered it. 10 years later as teenagers, but uh, has been a huge influence on them ever since. And since we enjoyed that little trip down memory lane, we thought we'd go a little further back than 1978, go all the way back to 1972, which was 50 years ago, if you can believe it. Not all of us were around 50 years ago. I was close. Jackson kind of got it at the very tail end of 72 there. But some amazing rock records were made in 1972, and to us, the number one was Exile on Main Street by the Rolling Stones. Now, the Stones had just gone through a few things here in the early 70s. They finally broke apart from their manager, Alan Klein, who was taking half of their royalties and lining his own pockets. But they also had some drug busts. They also had some immigration issues and tax issues. At one point in time, taxes in England for the very highest tax bracket were 103%. So you couldn't make it all and pay it all. And they were forced to go abroad to be tax exiles. And that's what the title Exile on Main Street is all about. They relocated to the south of France got a nice chateau. From my understanding, it was actually the second chateau that they got because they took their mobile recording studio, which we've talked about. So many legendary records have been recorded with the Rolling Stones mobile recording studio, many of which we reviewed on our show. But the first one, they couldn't get the thing through the gates. They had these big stone or concrete or marble gates that they couldn't get it through, so they had to find another place. But Keith did find a spot, and they had a big cast of characters hanging around them. So there's a lot of drugs going on. Keith is in the middle of his heroin phase. He's got a lot of other people pulled into that as well. And sessions would go all night, and then by the morning, Keith would trail off to go shoot up again or whatever. So there was a lot of tension around the band. But out of it came this incredible album, the only double album they ever made, with some stone-cold classics. Not only songs that everybody loves, they played for years like Tumbling Dice and Happy, but stuff like Shine a Light and All Down the Line, Torn and Frayed, Rip This Joint, Rocks Off, stuff that true Stone fans really love and that they've resurrected in tours over the last couple of decades to great fanfare. So we're going to dive headfirst into this here. Now, just a little bit of housekeeping here. You can always follow us and DM us at Ugly underscore Werewolf and at ActionJack72 on Twitter. And make sure you get all past episodes and follow us at www.UglyAmericanWerewolf.Libsyn.com. We want to thank Good Pods as we ended up number two in music history and number four in music commentary list, number eight overall on all music. It's a really great place to connect with podcasters and listeners from all around the world, and we really appreciate the recognition there, guys. So with that, we're going into one of our very favorites, an album turning 50 this year from the Rolling Stones. That's Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, Mick Taylor, Charlie Watts, and Bill Wyman with a lot of other guest contributors creating one of the true rock and roll classics. Turning 50 this year, it's Exile on Main Street here on The Wolf. Hello, Pantheon. 
Hang On Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We've got a lot of ground to cover here, Jackson. We've got a double album, really the Stones' only double album, which is having its 50th anniversary this year, Exile on Main Street. There's so many stories and so many amazing songs on this record, and we got to get to all of them. I mean, just opening, just kind of overall salvos. I mean, Mick, had, before they remastered this in 2010, Mick always complained that the sound wasn't good, the mix was off maybe especially on his vocals. They're in a basement in France. They're using the mobile recording studio. There's lots of people in and out. Keith was in no condition to work a lot of the time. But the songs are fantastic. Maybe it didn't get a bunch of top 40 hits at you know for 71, 72, 73 out of it. But as far as the songs go, for Stones fans and for people who know their whole catalog, this album's amazing. This could be the best album they ever put out. This could be, even though all of those things were present that you just said, probably creatively, it was the apex of their career. You know, you start with exile on Main Street. Well, you're exiled from what? Well, we don't want to pay taxes, so we're out of there. Well, that sounds horrible. Like, where did you go? The south of France. Yeah. Well, now, wait a minute. That sounds pretty cool. Yeah. So basically, they're hanging around in a chateau that Richards rented. Right. They're in the basement. Basically, it just sounds like it's catch as catch can. Like, I'm up. I'm halfway sober. Let's see who's hanging around, and let's play some music. And really, to me, this whole thing sounds like it could be played start to finish like a set list. Like, it literally is just like, okay, who knows a song? You know, okay, one, two, three, four, go, boom. And yeah, I know, like you said, Mick was upset with that. There's a great quote. Uh, Richard says, Mick needs to know what's going, uh, Mick needs to know what's going, what he's going to do tomorrow, said Richards. His voice slurred into a laugh. Me, I'm happy to wake up, see who's hanging around. Mick's rock, and I'm roll. Hmm. And I think that's that's a pretty I, I love that. I mean, that all has always been the mix between Jagger and Richards, what made them great, but then also what made them want to eventually at some point in time kill each other. Right. 
But yeah, it, it's just th- then there's a lot of stuff too going through this. Like nobody really knows who's playing on these tracks. That you know, person A says this, person B is like, no, you weren't there that day. We just started to play. Right. So yeah, I think I think it's a glorious trash fire <laughs> of a that nothing was really planned, nothing was scripted out. It just kind of happened. Yeah, I mean, to your point, Jackson, there's a, a lot of kind of back and forth on who actually plays bass. On the record, you know, Wyman wasn't there a lot because he wasn't a heroin addict. He, he's happy to go chase girls, but he doesn't want to shoot up and sit in the dark for three days, right? So it's like, I'm not coming <laughs> to all those sessions. Screw that. So, well, Keith can play some bass. Mick Taylor, who we've talked about many times in our personal conversations about the Mick Taylor era, was the era of the Rolling Stones, where they had the best output and the best sound, despite the fact that Keith was a junkie the entire time he was in the band. But yeah, so it's like, he's credited, Bill is credited on about eight songs, but he comes back and says, no, no, I played on a lot more than those. Whereas Taylor's like, no, I played bass on that track. I'm like, well, okay, nobody really knows because everybody was in a bit of a state. And, and, and Mick Jagger was a little bit busy chasing girls. I mean, I think he was... Married to Bianca at the time, but if you know anything about Mick, that doesn't really matter. So, especially in the south of France in the summer, it's right. like, what do you expect him to do? You know? <laughs> so, but you know, like Graham Parsons was there right before he died of a heroin overdose. You know, um, yeah. there's some other John Lennon was there when he was kind of still in a bit of his heroin phase, which I think he was on Get Back. You know, so. Yeah, I mean, there, there was, you know, some shady characters. There's a lot of drugs going on. And their work time, like, you know, like you and I go to the office from like 8 to 5 or something like that. And, and we kind of saw him get back with the Beatles. It was kind of a 10 to 4 or 5 kind of thing with, you know, maybe a little leeway either way. Their work time was 8 p.m. to 3 a.m. But they, those are the office hours. I'm like, yeah, if that's still going on, what do you expect's going to come out of it, you know? Well, and especially, like you said, if you're the kind of person like Wyman who's really not into that, right. I'm not putting up with this. This is ridiculous. And and for all of the, the stuff that we got off of this record, there was probably just a lot of just crap. And so I'm sure that he just got fed up with it and said, I, I'm, I don't want any part of this. I know I'm going to stay up until 3 o'clock in the morning just so maybe we can cobble something together. So, yeah, I th- this was a very cantankerous point in their career, I think. But again, they, they had a lot of other guys hanging around like you said you mentioned Graham Parsons you know they had they had uh, Bobby Keys and Nicky Hopkins and all these guys who I uh, know they're not members of the band but they were for this record I mean they definitely they, their stamps are definitely all over this thing and it adds a whole nother layer of playing to it that the members of the Stones could not come up with well that's right I mean there are a lot of uh, piano players around and there's a lot of very prominent keyboard on this record, because there's a lot of blues, there's a, like a countryside, there's a lot of gospel to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Nicky Hopkins, who's great, uh, is all over it. But Stu, Ian Stewart, you know, the former member and eventual road manager who died in about 1985 or so, he plays on piano on a few tracks. Billy Preston comes in and plays organ and keyboard on Shine a Light. Of course, he was all over get back he was a big reason those sessions turned into what they did if you ask me but not to foreshadow anything we'll probably get to that here before too long but no the the ladies Vanetta Fields and Clyde King who were doing backing vocals on 
Tumbling Dice and Shine a Light, Let It Loose, and a couple of the others. They're fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're so good. And just some other folks who were just kind of around, you know, Jimmy Miller, who is their longtime producer. He's a he's a drummer, too, you know, and he does a lot of percussion on the album, including All Down the Line and, you know, a little bit on Happy and Shine a Light, Tumbling Dice. So it's not all just Charlie. And of course, Bobby Keys is just, I mean, he's Keith's main man. You know, those two were born on the same day, hours apart, 5,000 miles apart. And I guess we're just kindred spirits and a couple of crazy sons of bitches, you know. But Bobby could blast it out, man. Yeah, and I, there, was, there was a whole documentary that was done about this. And it came out a couple of years ago. And, and I remember Keith saying, yeah, when did we do that? Did, was that like a, did you cobble that together? And I'm like, no, Keith, there were people with cameras there the whole time. No, nah, I don't remember that. Yeah. Like, you don't remember somebody standing there filming this entire dip? Nah. I mean, he was just, he was just, I mean, I think he's kind of a, he definitely lives in his own world. But right. at this point in time, it was, it was get up. It was kind of, you know, maybe have something to eat, hang around, heroin time. And right. then. You know, whatever was going to be the rest of the day was going to be the rest of the day. The fact that he's still alive or made it through this time and is still alive is... It's unbelievable. Something for the scientific journals. I don't get it. I really don't. It's unbelievable. (laughs) And they would talk about how they would wait for days for him to come down with a tune, with a riff, whatever. Now he would come down and sometimes like... Oh, that's that's fucking awesome. That's unbelievable. That was worth right. waiting for. But it's like, you know, days and days, it's kind of like, what are we doing here? You know, and then he would come down, let's try this. And it was killer, you know. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, your tax exiles, because the taxes are crazy, you know, they're, they're something like 90-something percent. They got Alan Klein. They suddenly realize, hey, Alan Klein takes half of our royalties. What's up with that, you know? So this was the first album that was kind of out from under ABCO, which was Alan Klein's publishing. Yes, he got them a good record deal, but he was taking half of it for himself, and his family still controls half of it, you know, from 64 to 71 to this day. His kids and grandkids, that's that's their annuity. That's what they do. That's their business is, yeah. is just managing their portion of Mick and Keith's work. But I mean, yeah, even four or five songs, because they did them in sessions at Olympic in the 71 time when they were still under his contract, they got rights to some of this as well, which is crazy. Yeah, and I, yeah, and I know that was a big, that was another thing that was kind of adding to the mix of uh, bad feelings was, yeah, they, I don't know whether they didn't realize that or didn't realize the magnitude of how bad they were getting hosed on this deal. But yeah, it's, it's just, you make a lot of money, but if they take it away from you, it's no fun. Right. I remember we watched the VHS 25 by five, which came out in the late eighties, kind of when they were gearing up for steel wheels and all that. Keith and Mick was, of course, Mick is a pretty savvy businessman. And to this day, he makes sure everything's in his favor and everything's as tax efficient as possible. And he's, He's very sharp on that. And and he's like, to this day, that's still a problem. That was 30 plus years ago. Keith was like, hey, man, that's the price of an education. You know, and I, I roll on. As long as that money for cigs, you know, what's it matter? You know, cigs yeah. and guitar strings, it's all I need. <laughs> That, that's the thing. I mean, you could beat yourself up over that forever. I mean, but you still got a pretty sweet life now. You've got a ton of money. And so, yeah, what's it really going to get you? You're not going to get that money back. So you might as well just move on. Yeah. And so, well, but, yeah, but so my dad's like, because remember when Apple had their Macs, their iMacs that came in all these different colors, and then they used She's a Rainbow as like uh-huh. the song they used in the commercial. And he was reading the thing like, 
The Stones got $4 million to use that song. And the, do you believe that Mick gets $4 million? I'm like, whoa, 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 Dad. Mick gets $1 million. Keith gets $1 million. Alan Klein's family gets two, you know. So Mick probably said, I'm not doing it unless I get a million dollars, which means you got to pay us $4 million. It's kind of the way that works. I was going to say, and the other thing, too, is you don't really have control over either. Like, I'm sure no one asked Mick if they could use it in the Apple deal. They were just like, this is what's happening, and here's what we're going to pay you. I don't know. I, I got a feeling he's because he, he has some control over that. I mean, if he said no, cease and desist, they couldn't do it. So they're like, okay, yeah, you want it? Fine. This is the price. And Apple's like, yeah, that's that's what we want for the campaign. So here you go. Who was it that played something? I can't even remember the story now. Somebody played like a clip of some Rolling Stones song on a on a show or something. It was like a radio show that they were using for promotion. Like, oh, now you did it. Now we're going to have to pay them a zillion dollars because apparently their stuff is very expensive. I have no doubt. I have no <laughs> doubt. But yeah, I mean... Being in the south of France, and it really starts like in the spring through the summer. Now, they also recorded an Olympic here in London in 71. They also did some in L.A., I think, in 72. And that was, I think, also probably tax-related. You go to these different places or whatever to, to kind of spread out where you're working and, and move the tax number down. But back in the day, and this is really their, like we said, it's really their only double album. And there's four kind of distinct sides to this. Of course, now these days, it's just one big CD. And like I said, they did the 2010 remaster. There's a whole companion disc of some stuff that was remastered. Some things they cleaned up, some kind, some things they kind of left as is. But to me, there, there's four distinct sides. Where the first, you know, rocks off through tumbling dice. That's a kind of rock and roll kind of push out, come out here and let's let's show you what we got kind of thing. Also very France-like. Side two, which is Sweet Virginia, Torn and Frayed, Sweet Black Angel, Level Cup. That to me is very country, kind of showing their country okay. phase. And maybe that was part of Graham Parsons' influence on Keith at the time. And then third was from Happy, Ventilator Blues, Let It Loose, that kind of thing. There's a lot of blues in there. And then, I don't know, I feel like there's more gospel on side four, although all down the line is, we're, we're going to get to that. That's uh, that's so good, it hurts my feelings. Um <laughs> So good. And of course, all tracks are written by Jagger and Richards, except for a couple of blues covers. However, there's some contention, and Mick Taylor does get a, a single co-write on here, but there's some, there's some stories about how Bobby Whitlock thinks he deserves uh, some writing credit, and Leon Russell probably deserves some writing credit. Yet another couple of amazing piano players. We've mentioned like six or seven piano players who had some kind of influence or played on this great record, you know? And I think that's what it comes down to. And you, you had mentioned about Get Back, and we've talked a couple other times about what, who, yeah, who deserves the credit? Who wrote this song? Well, you know, I came up with it. No, you came up with a piano part inside of what we already did, right. or inside the frame, so you don't really get... I mean, it, what it comes down to is money. That's what it comes down to. If you get writing credit, you get part of the royalties, and people don't want to give that up. But on the same ticket, I can see how you could say, well, I mean, no, all you did was just you you wrote a part based on what I had already done. So I don't know. I think you can argue that seven ways from Sunday. Yeah. But it is cool to see Mick Taylor on here. I think that they, they would have done, they would have served him a lot better to let him write more stuff. And I think that's why he ultimately left the band because he's like, I'm not, I don't want to put up with this. I'm not a musician. I'm a, I'm a creator mm -hmm. and you won't let me do what I want to do. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's great to be on tour and it's, it's great to be 
face in magazines, playing much bigger venues than I did with John Mayall and the Blues Breakers. Yeah, that's great. But the checks that roll in for Mick and Keith are enormous. I mean, like hundreds of thousands of dollars versus, you know, you get paid 300 bucks to play on the records. Like, huh? I was there all those months, you know, in the Chateau basement, like dealing with all the druggies and everything else. uh, And I get 300 bucks. Kind of crazy. They've got to bring the Mick and Keith checks on those big golf ones that to take two people to carry. And yeah. You get a couple, and they throw you a couple bucks. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, whatever falls out of Keith's pocket, you can keep that, Mick. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's for you, Bill, you know. And so just to talk about where they come from, you know, 69 saw the release of Let It Bleed, the death of Brian Jones, uh, the entrance of Mick Taylor to the band. He played a little bit on Let It Bleed. Of course, we reviewed that on our Charlie Watts tribute, which was about show number 41 or so. That was our favorite Stone song uh, record for the longest time. Really kind of introduced us to the deep back catalog. Then they went and did, and I think they toured in 69, if I'm not mistaken. Then they did Sticky Fingers in 71 with the Andy Warhol cover and some amazing tracks on that. Really Mick Taylor's first in earnest go around with the band. And then, yeah, they come up, they have these tax problems and legal problems. They're separating themselves from Alan Klein. They're getting Rolling Stones Records, which is really kind of a glamour label as part of Atlantic, but Leonard Chess's son Marshall to come kind of run it. And, and then, you know, obviously their, their royalties are going to be taken care of and the stuff that the record company usually rips you off with, they're going to be keeping that. They're, they're very in tune, attuned to that. But meanwhile, yeah, Mick's getting married, which is never a good idea for Mick. It probably seemed like a good idea at the time. Keith's still with Anita, who he took from Brian. They're both heroin addicts. You know, Wyman is running around doing his thing. Charlie's just kind of following along. He wasn't into drugs at the time, but later he did get into heroin thanks to Keith's influence, I think. You know, so it's kind of a crazy, plus there's all these hangers on, there's all these people around. And it, it, although it probably felt kind of cool to be kind of bohemian and, hey, you know, this isn't an office, this is a lifestyle kind of thing, and it's sunny here and all that kind of stuff. Still, with all that heroin and stuff, lots of dark clouds and legal problems. You're not at home. You can't see your family all that much. It had to have been an odd time. I can imagine that if you were not into the, hey, you know, whatever's going to happen is going to happen today mindset, it would have driven you insane. If you had any kind of, like, black and white dollars and cents thinking, Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, you know, because I'm sure there were days that went by that nothing happened, not or nothing creatively, or that moved the moved the thing forward, and so you're just sitting there, you know, okay, everybody, like you said, everybody's on heroin. It's now midnight. We really haven't gotten anything done. So I think when looking back through the lens of history, it's a great time. But yeah, had you lived through it, no, not so much fun. Plus the thing is too, you didn't know were these people gonna. I mean, you know, you mentioned Graham Parsons. How many other people have died from heroin use? There's a good chance some of these people might not be here tomorrow. I don't know. There, it's it's bad. I don't know whether you know how many times the ambulance got called during those days. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I can imagine you were just kind of on pins and needles with is this thing even going to happen. Or is this just going to dry up to nothing? Or is somebody just going to say, forget it, I'm leaving? Mick's had enough. Bill Wyman's had enough. Charlie Watts has had enough. Who knows? I don't know. And that probably is what colors part of Mick's feeling about the record as well. It's, it's not just, hey, this doesn't, I don't sound as good as I could. It's, it's also, God, what a pain all of that was. That was not an easy thing to go through. Yeah. And, and 
and that that just colors the memory. It, it's same with Get Back when Peter Jackson, your long lost cousin, correct, was was going through and, and doing this thing, going through all the footage with the Beatles. Paul and Ringo were like, eh, nah, I don't know if we were going to go through this because they remember the the tough times. Remember John being on heroin and. Yoko being up in everybody's business all the time and you know they're they're moving studios and they're they're looking to break away and they've got kids and relationships and like it was falling apart at that point you know I, I don't that wasn't a good time but but now you kind of re-examine it from just sonically how good were the songs and the fact is sometimes you write great songs yeah maybe they don't sound as good as they could on the record but then you go out and play them live and they kick ass, and they can be a great part of your set for years to come, and that's why the fans tend to, to like them. So, I don't know. I And people like Izzy Stradlin of, of Guns N' Roses always talk about how, like, this is the one. I always had a copy of this near me, you know. I always had the LP at home. I always took the cassette with us on the road. You know, I always had to have it close to me because I had to have it near me to, to keep these sounds in my in my wheelhouse, in my ear, right? Yeah, and and it, it really does sound like, like I said before, just guys hanging around, and it's like, okay, who wants to play a song? Who's got something? Somebody starts, and everybody else kind of fills in. It's very loose, very, it, it's incoherent, and then coherent all at the same time. The songs don't go together, but then they go together perfectly. So I can imagine, yeah, that's this is what you were always, if you're somebody like Izzy, this is what you were always trying to attain, Some this feel on this. And I mean, that's a, we'll talk about that on another episode too, about how it it is really cool to have different people with different mindsets in the same band, because then you kind of get this ebb and flow of, it's not all the same. If you have, or if you have one person who's in charge and everybody else is just following along, it's what they want to do. Right. And I guess maybe you could say that about this record only because it was Keith Richards being Keith Richards. Right, right. And we love Keith Richards. <laughs> By the way, man, I found the jewelers in town here who made his original skull ring. And, and I can get us sub. Now, they're not dirt cheap. They're not like, you know, 50 bucks. Uh, or, you know, you, you put a quarter of the machine, turn the knob, and maybe you get it. But, but they're not outrageous either. It's just, uh-huh. how often are we going to wear <laughs> Are you going to wear it to the office? You're going to go, you know, to... You know, to your insurance meetings at Lloyd's of London with a skull ring on? Is that going to set the stage? <laughs> you know, for as much as I say no, a big part of me was like, oh, I might have to do that. That might be sweet. Especially in, especially at Lloyd's, people would be like, hey, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. I know that ring. But I was thinking about that. I'm like, what if you and I went to the jeweler and picked out matching skull rings when you were in town here? How, how hot would, would be, that be, dude? That would be sweet. That would be so awesome. <laughs> There's a, there's a great story about how they, he was in Pirates of the Caribbean, one of those – and so he comes out and he puts his hands down on the book or something and you can see the skull ring mm-hmm. right there. And I guess somebody was interviewing him and Johnny Depp and he got there and he was like, oh, hey, cool. They let you keep that ring, huh? Well, that you know the costume department was good to you that day or something. He's like, "Are you kidding me? Yeah, are you get, kidding? Get this child out of you here! Let somebody else interview like, me." Yeah, basically, he was just like, because the guy who was telling the story was like, I guess somebody from Rolling Stone called him. Is like, you need to go over there right now and relieve this dude because they're gonna kill him. Yeah, they are literally. They've already thrown him out. They won't talk to him again. I'm like, wow, yeah. How do you not do some kind of research on that before you talk? Hey, fellas. 
Well, you were in a band? Hmm, tell me about that. Yeah. It's like the idiot who went to the Van Halen concert uh, during the Foreign Lawful Carnal Knowledge Tour. He goes, and then Eddie does his solo, but now he's added in 316 from Foreign Lawful Carnal Knowledge. I'm like, you idiot. He'd been doing that live for like eight years. Someone's like, I didn't want to see Van Halen. I wanted to see The Cure. I hate paying my dues at Rolling Stone. Loser. Shut up. Shut up. This is Neil from Daft Left Pod, and you're listening to the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast. All right, well, let's get into the... All right. Let's, let's get into it. this record, Exile Main Street. Of course, the album cover is, it's all black and white, and it's got kind of black and white pictures of like carnival sidemen, right? People who can do freaky, the freaks and the things, people who can do odd things. The only one that ever stands out to me is Three Ball Charlie. Yes, yes. It, yeah, if you, yes. You can sit there and look at it and stare at it, but yes, Three Ball Charlie is the, the hallmark of this. And was that really like, it just, it, the whole cover is just like, yes, we're part of this freak show. We're, we're creating this freak show. Here's a middle finger to the rest of the world. We're doing what we want. Yeah, we're on the run. We're, we're kind of on the road. We're away from our homes. We're just doing our thing as best we can. Yeah, it's this young black guy who can put a, a, a pool ball, a tennis ball, and a golf ball all in his mouth at the same time. And, and, and they'll sell you a shirt with just that on there. I avoid that for let's call it politically correct reasons. Yes. Um, yes. But it's 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 a classic iconic cover, and like we said, the only double record they've ever made, which is is kind of amazing. When you think about how big time is physical physical graffiti in the canon of Led Zeppelin, as it's the only double. This is the only double they did, which means you're going to have some deep tracks. You're going to have stuff on there that was never going to be radio friendly. Maybe it has some bad language in it, not intended to be on the radio. But I think there was 18 songs in this record. There are none on this, Jackson, that are throwaways. There's none on here that said, no. well, they probably shouldn't have put that on there. It's like, oh, that could have been a B-side or, or save for the, the remastered bonus disc. All of this is good. Maybe I don't love it all. Maybe they're not all my favorites, but it's all good. Right. Right, it, it, there is no, there is no that one weird like what what is it on uh, synchronicity mother from Andy Summers? Right, like okay, well that was a, that was some pet project that he was working on. That they're like, yeah, put that on there. Yeah, you're right. There is none of that on here. It all works. Yeah, right. And Sting gets I, all the songs. Yeah. I want a song. Okay, what's your song? Well, mine's right. mother. Yeah, that's why you don't get any more songs. Shut up. Right, right. <laughs> I, I told you, I'm giving you this one time out of the box. Yeah, it's one that you can put on and just listen to. Well, I would say start, you know, cover to cover, but it's, you're going to have to do some changing on the record, but that's fine. It's like the remake of uh, Longest Yard. When the guy's like, hey, how come I don't get to play quarterback? He's like, you're right, throw me a pass. He throws in the dirt. He goes, that's why, you moron. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, sit down. <laughs> All right, so we're going to go, we'll go side by side here. So side one, we okay. start off with Rocks Off, mm -hmm. which has obviously got the good stone sexual overtones and undertones, but it starts off with, with that riff. Oh, yeah. Like, this is it. We're getting dirty in this one. Just get ready, kiddies, you know? I think if you said, what is the, what is the signature Keith Richards, Rolling Stones sound, th this is what you would come up with in your head. This is what he could just sit there and rattle these things off a million times. So yeah, to start this off, you know, you got the horn, you got the piano right off the bat, you know what you're getting yourself into. It's a great uh, opening track to the record. 
Yeah, the, the Charlie, as soon as Charlie comes in there, like, there's Charlie. God, I love him. He's so awesome. God bless him. He's so good. But then, you know, you get into some of the lyrics and stuff like that. If only I get my rocks off while I'm sleeping. That sounds almost like a Mick thing. Uh, but when you when he gets to the part where I can't even feel the pain no more, I'm like, well, that's that's Keith's side of the, of the street, right? You know, that's that's what that heroin does. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and the yeah. sunshine bores the daylight out of me. Yeah, it's because you 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 sleep all day because the sun hurts your eyes, and then you work all night. You smackhead. <laughs> and I like that kind of the slow like freak out part in the middle, and then it comes back in at the end. The psychedelic stuff, the the effect they have on mixed vocals is is very trippy. You know, it's it's kind of got a two thousand light years piece on that. You know, but it, it's killer. It's really cool. <laughs> Yeah, it, it works in the song, but you wouldn't think that if he said, okay, now we need a freak out part of the middle. Mm-hmm. But no, it works in this one. And who played piano on that one? I, I, it's probably Nikki, uh, Nikki Hopkins. Uh, I don't have it here, but I would I would have not. Most not of it is Nikki. That. Most of it is Nikki, yeah. but, but you know, sometimes some people did some other things. I, I thought Nikki was really good on this one. The piano's great on that one. Just a great way to kick off the album. And it's one they've kind of put back in the set list over the years. It's... It's it's one that the fans like, and I think they like to do live. Then they go to rip this joint, and now we're kicking it up a notch, right? If this is the rocking side, pop. It's kind of bouncy and short. It's got some great Bobby Key sax on there. But again, this is a great live one. It's got some nice slide by Mr. McTaylor on there. It's also got... What I really like, it's got that like rockabilly sound from the stand-up bass. Mm-hmm. It's, cre- it's credited to Bill uh, Plummer, um, and that you could you can tell that right off the bat. Like that's a stand-up uh, acoustic bass. That boom, 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 you can't miss it, and it definitely adds to the. It's not the same as Rocks Off. We're doing it. it it's a rocking tune, right? But now we're taking it more to the American New Orleans jazz kind of rockabilly travel log. You know, it's so I, yeah, it's it's a it's a great follow-up. Again, we're full throttle here right off the bat. Yeah, we're off and running here, doing well, you know. And so, and you say that, we always talk about first one's got to be good, second one's got to kick it up a notch, third one, you got to bring it back a little bit. You know, even on a double album, you know. Shake Your Hips is not a slow song, number three. It's an old, I think it's a Slim Harpo song, an old kind of blues cover. But it's kind of got a, a, a skiffle thing to it. It's a little spare. It's not got everybody all over it. Oh, I heard this song and I was, I had to go and look. I'm like, when did CC Top's LaGrange come out? Because that's the same intro. Mm, very interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a great riff, and I'm sure it's probably one of those. If you go back, that's you know the the riff that everybody knew how to play. It part of the you know the twelve bar blues. But it definitely sounded like that. And again, it's rocking, but we're changing the trajectory a little bit. That's right. It's not the same. It's not the same riff. It's not the same groove. But it works with the the other two songs you've already heard. And as we know from the Stones, they get together on a on a couple of chords and jam, you know. And so, hey, there's an right. old Slim song. All right, let's play this and see where it takes see us. Where it and, goes. Yeah, you know, yeah. And, and and it came out pretty pretty well, you know. Move next to Casino Boogie. I mean, they're close to Nice. I, I my wife's been to Nice. I have not. I assume there's a casino down there. Obviously, there's one in Monte Carlo which is probably not 
right. super far away. I, this is where I feel like Mick, T, Mick Taylor is starting to find his way into the record a little bit more because there's some nice noodling between him and Keith at the end. This was never my favorite. It's kind of a deep track when they pull this back. The real hardcore fans go crazy. I, I'm, I, there are other songs that I would rather hear from the album. It's not a bad song or anything. It's just like, you know, it's it's rocking. It's upbeat. It's got some good stuff. To me, this is like Taylor's starting to, to put his stamp a little bit more on the record here. Yeah. I've got a note here. I was reading about this song, and apparently Jagger couldn't come up with lyrics for it, so he just wrote down random stuff and like on pieces of paper, and they kind of just picked stuff and pasted it on there. So... And, and I think we've talked about this before. Sometimes it's actually kind of cool to have a song where the lyrics are just kind of, they don't really matter. They're just kind of put in there to bring the whole song together. Right, yeah. Jagger's using his voice as an instrument. It's not right. necessarily Correct. what he's saying. It's not necessarily telling you a story you need to follow, but he's using his voice to convey the feeling, the mood of the song. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a great song from Queen called Dragon Attack mm-hmm. where the, the lyrics are almost nonsensical, but it's his voice and then the music. It's like, okay, we need, we've got this great, we got this great track with no vocals on it. Put something on there. Well, here's something. And right. it just ties it together. But I kind of feel the same way about this. You're really, it's more of an instrumental with the vocals, like you said, being just another instrument on here. Exactly. But then you follow, you finish the side. It's the fifth song on the CD. It's the last song on side one of the first LP, Tumbling Dice. You can't have a more classic Stone song than Tumbling Dice, man. No. I mean, you can't. No. And just that, just that riff. Oh, that opening. You, know, you just kind of, he. it's almost like he just kind of floats it out there. You know, that... And then here's here's where we, this is where we get into the cantankerous part here. The opening riff kind of tees up that bass line, mm-hmm. and here's where we get to who did that because Mick Taylor says that he did it. Wyman is like, no, 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 no. I play bass, and I don't know, but the bass, whoever played it, it's fantastic on this song. Yeah, it is. You know, it, it's absolutely, and it's such a classic. I mean, it just as soon as I hear that opening, that kind of little sliding he's doing on the neck there. Yep. I, I, oh, I put the smile on my face. Whatever I'm doing, I be with the kids. I could be working. Whatever. I, I pick up the air guitar and I'm grooving, you know. And the, the drums come in and there's that groove there to it. And I'm like, oh yeah, woo <laughs> The bass does stand out to me. I, I put Bill Wyman. I don't know if it's really him. It's yeah. a little dirty. This song, mm-hmm. but I mean, they have to play Satisfaction. They have to play Jumpin' Jazz Flash. They used to have to play Brown Sugar. It's it's kind of politically incorrect now, but I mean, this has got to be number three or four or something like that on the song. Yeah. They oh, yeah. have to play. And and the whole the whole part about you know <clears throat> where they sing, you got to roll me and then keep on rolling. Yeah, yeah it's it's. Oh, the it's girls great. are great on this. You know the backup singers are awesome yeah. on this one. Yeah. Don't need your jewels in my crown. But then there's, you know, I'm sixes, seven, and nines to kind of to kind of tie in the, the tumbling dice thing, which is probably also related to being near the casino and maybe a little gambling going on or whatever. But this is so good. I mean, every time I just hear that opening bit, smile on my face, air guitar out, I'm sloping down like Keith, mm, mm, you know, even though I'm three times the size, it just makes me, makes me, puts a smile on my face every single time. 
you pretend you got that Marlboro just hanging out of your lip. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, so that's the end of side one of the first. Then we get to side two, and like I said, this feels like a very country side to me. And Sweet Virginia, again, it's it's got some good harp on it. Again, we've got good standout piano playing on it. Bobby Keys is great. By the end, it's kind of a bit of a hootenanny before it winds up because it, it starts a little spare, it, not jamming or everything. But by the end, everybody's playing pretty pretty well together. Yeah, I, I wrote down the, the harmonica is killer on the intro. Mm-hmm. And it really kind of sounds like somebody started playing something and then everybody kind of jumped in at the end. Definitely has a has the, the Graham Parsons touch on there, or at least influence. Influence, yeah, I would say um, that for sure. Yeah, you know, the lyrics, uh, what do I got there here? The lyrics allude to drug use and pills, uh, low-grade heroin, drop your reds, drop your greens and your blues. I hit that speed inside my shoe. Kind of scrape that shit right off your shoes. I mean, it's just... Every everything was yeah. I mean, it's kind of cool when you you can listen to that and then like you really listen to it. Hey, wait a minute. Yeah, yeah. It's just the the, the drug use is so prevalent yeah. here. It's everywhere. They can't not sing about it, you know. And, and right, Bill Wyman exactly. definitely played on this one, and Ian Stewart did that piano, man. So it's almost like the boys. From back ten years before, almost are all together again, you know. Yeah, pretty pretty good ways. And it's look, it's country, but it's country blues. And right, and, you know, it's it, those two do weave together quite a bit. A lot of people say you hate country music. I'm like, that, that's that's not really true. There are some parts of country music I don't like, and obviously there's some artists I don't care for at all. But if you go back far enough, the country and the blues have a lot of the same uh, inroads. Well, I mean, you figure that. You know, you had the blues, you had country, then you had rockabilly, and then that went into rock and roll. So it's really all the same. It's coming from the same place and kind of got mixed together a little bit, and, mm-hmm. the, and the best parts of it got made into what would become rock and roll. Yeah, you're right. There's a lot of country music I can't stand, but there's country music that's fantastic. That's People right. that can really play, and we're not talking about, you know, my truck broke down and the dog yeah, yeah, down. The, the lyrics I always about. have a problem with, you know. I always have a problem with. <laughs> You know, uh, <laughs> it has to be up in your face. Otherwise, ah, what the hell is he talking about? Trying to take our guns? <sighs> anyway, next song on there, Torn yes. and Frayed. Again, country blues, yes. acoustic. You can hear Keith singing in the background pretty clearly on this one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I like it. Isn't this one of your very favorites? I love this song. It almost sounds like the greatest Grateful Dead song ever played. I really had that feel about it, but it but it's more upbeat. There's there's the steel guitar on there. Mm-hmm. You got Jagger and Richard singing, you know, as they should be. This is another one where I have Mick Taylor on the bass. I don't know. That's that's what I in my research, that's what I wrote down. You've got an organ, you've got the piano. Yeah, it's it's a it, it's a great song. One you're probably not gonna hear that much, but when you get to it on this side of the record, you're like, hey, wait a minute, this is this is good stuff here. Why have I not heard this before? Yeah, and and Keith and Mick Taylor, uh, they kind of do a little bit of back and forth at the end, maybe mix on a little bit of slider or steel, and 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 Keith's doing some acoustic or back on his guitar. So it's this is a nice song, and it, again. Most of these songs, at some point in the last 25 years, they've broken a lot of these songs out, especially on the tour where they did, I think it was the Licks tour where they had theater show, arena show, stadium show, so they could mix more of it 
back in. But yeah, it's uh, one that I hadn't heard on the radio much when I was a kid, but as an adult, it's it's pretty great. Now, Sweet Black Angel, I feel like there's a lot of, it's not a heavy song. I don't know if everybody plays on it, but I hear shakers. Are they hitting cans on here at some point? There's a little bit of acoustic stuff in there. Again, it's very country blues to me. Sweet Black Angel, and I don't know who all played on what, but it all comes together really well. Yeah, there's, I think there's some marimba on there. Jimmy Miller is on here for some of the percussion. Mm-hmm. I, I had heard this song before, but apparently there's a whole nother layer going on, this, this deal. They never mention Angela Davis by name, but apparently they allude to her. Right. And she went to prison because there were people that, that they were killed with guns that she owned or something and she was in prison for a while even though they had like zero evidence on her or something like that like it was a real it's this it's this song that's got this pretty heavy duty social message on it right kind of tucked into the rest of this record again none of this is none of this is proven it's just that's the that's the urban legend that it's been attached to it. Yeah, but I mean, Angela Davis was a social activist, did a lot of work with the Black Panthers, the FBI, and I think the CIA both kind of had a war with the Black Panthers, and they were trying to prevent a, a messiah, a Christ-like figure who would really rise up and unite, you know, all these folks. And Angela had the probably opportunity to do that as much as anybody, more than Stokely Carmichael and or, or anybody. And so, like, yeah, we can we can trump up some stuff on her. We can tamp all this down really fast and i think that's exactly what happened but i don't know you know it's it's just interesting to me that that the stones not known for being politically active mm -hmm. in their mute decided to pull this one out i mean again everything's alleged it's i mean if you haven't read the story it's actually a pretty good read about what was going on then in the United States. Right. So I, I found I didn't I didn't, know, I didn't know anything about it until I started researching this, and I thought it was an interesting addition that they put on. Absolutely, man. And then uh, winding up the side is um, is uh, uh, is loving cup, which again is a is a favorite. I mean, it's it's absolutely a favorite of Stones fans everywhere, really. Great, great stuff on here. I think this might have been one of those four songs, too. They started this back in 69 or something and brought it brought it back to life. Let's see, I actually had the notes on that. Yeah, see, what I have here is early version of Loving Cup, completely different piano intro, was recorded between April and July 1969 at Olympic Studios, London, during the Let It Bleed sessions. Got it, yeah, no, okay, so it was Sweet Virginia, Loving Cup, All Down the Line, which we'll get to, Shine a Light, which we'll get to, uh, and stuff. Stop Breaking Down, which was written by Robert Johnson, but, you know, reinterpreted by Jagger Richards. Abco, uh, you know, got the publishing rights to the songs. Like, nah, you made those between 69 and 71 while you were under Maybe. my thumb, basically. Um, Ooh. See there? And, uh, and yeah. you know, and now you have to, you know, you have to give us the money for that, which is kind of bogus, but that's life in the big city, I guess. But no, great piano at the start of Loving Cup. Keith backing, and then Charlie's drums come in and really kick it out, you know, and it's got the, the great line of the sweet summer sun uh, in it, a great, I, I like in the middle eight, or the bridge, they might call it, there's kind of a slowdown, and then they build back up with the big horns at the end. Great, and it's a great way to kind of finish up this kind of country blues side to the record. Yeah, and I think it's cool that they there's a lot of records where they write horn parts, and then they have people come in and play those parts, it's cool that they had somebody who could play all those instruments just kind of at the ready. 
So where it fit, you just jump in and play. You didn't have to go back and reinsert it. Right. So I think I think probably the horn showed up a lot more because Keys was just there and could do his thing. And could do his thing. Oh, and I, I you know, it wasn't Charlie's drums. This is Jimmy Miller on Loving Cup, apparently. Okay. So. Okay. Charlie, Charlie wasn't a heroin guy back then. He was kind of wondering, like, what are we doing here? You know, what are we waiting, I, I, waiting around for? Why do we not start till nine at night? You know, <laughs> I can imagine that there would be, there would have been a lot of fun to hang around with him at that point in time, and just the disdain, yeah, because he's a very proper English gentleman. And to see these people just laying around, ugh. Mm, I don't like this at all. Yeah. He might smoke a joint. He might get a little loaded now and then. But, uh, you know, he's like, can we go to work now, please? Yeah. <laughs> like, what did we do today? Nothing. <laughs> you know? All right. So then that's the end of LP1. Coming to LP2. Side one of LP2. What's it start off with, Jackson? Well, you could call it the, one of the greatest Rolling Stones songs ever made. Yep. Definitely in my top five. Might even be t- It might even be the greatest song ever. It's happy, and it makes me happy every time it comes on. That's another one where it, this, it can't get loud enough. No matter what's going on during the day, it's just, it's on, it's great. I will never turn it off. I remember, what the heck was that record? It was called Made in the Shade. Yeah. Remember that one? Uh-huh. That was kind of like a half-hearted greatest hits. I don't even think it's available anymore. And that was one of those tracks. When I heard that for the first time, I was like, where has this been? What do you mean? What's going on? And just the, the, the vocals of Keith Richards fit this song perfectly. It, it, what did he say? It was uh, it, it credited to Jagger Richards, but really it's Keith Richards. Yeah. In the in the south of France. What did he say? Uh, it's Keith it, and Charlie and Bobby, Bobby, and that's it. Those are the only people on the damn yeah. song. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It, he, we had nothing. At noon, it never existed. At four o'clock, it was on tape. Yeah. That was it. It was. It's just. A, it's just a jam that turned into something great. And then again, would this one have horns on it if Bobby Keys was not around? Probably not. Probably not. But it but it fits and it just kind of builds, you know, and then at the end it kind of it, it's almost like they start off when it's just like, you know, oh hey, let's play a song and then by the end people are like, What is that? I want in on that. It turns into this raucous good time. And it's one that Keith could really sit out and sing. Now look, Keith had sung lead or shared lead on a few stone songs right. previously. Obviously we love you got the silver from Let It Bleed. But that's such a slow, low song. They're not going to play that a whole lot in concert, especially in the 70s. You know, he did Salt of the Earth kind of with Mick. He did the first verse and Mick went on from there. Did Connection with Mick on Between the Buttons. And there may be one or two others where it did a little bit. But this one was like the first, like, we're going to give Mick a a rest. Or if he's not going to have to sing lead, this is one where Keith can step up to the mic and really sing it. And for the most part, it's been a staple of their shows for years. Now, he doesn't, he's not obligated to do Happy. I think in like the 70s, 80s, and even in the 90s, Keith gets two songs. It was generally happy and something else, whether that's right. Before You Make Me Run or a little TNA or whatever it might be. Keith gets two songs, but one of them was always happy. And I'm actually happy that he can move away from Like we saw some of the set list from this last fall where he did Connection and Before They Make Me Run. I was like, oh my God, why weren't Jackson and I at that show, man? You know. Yeah, that. Well, the the other cool thing too is, in the quick aside, I love those uh, the Ronnie Wood set lists that he puts together. Those are fantastic. Those are great. And he signs them and everything. I can't even imagine what that would cost you to possess one of those things. 
but well, you can get the lift though. Posted. You can get the lift though if you want. Maybe we should pick one out. But I would, I would only want one if I actually went to the show. That's my thing. Well, that, that's the yeah, that's the thing too, because that's going to be the first thing someone asks you. Oh, cool, you were at the show. Well, no, no, I just think it's a cool set. <laughs> yeah, I just sure. like St. Louis. What can I say? Uh, <laughs> but you know, never want to be like Papa. No, working for the boss every night and day. It's like that's a that's rock right. and roll lyric if I ever heard one, man. Well, I mean, what, what is it you want out of life? I need a love that makes me happy. That's all you need. Yeah, it's it's one of those songs where like listen, I can listen to it and then put it right on again. Yep, which you can't do in public, but in private, you can do that all you want. <laughs> Moving on, the lovely Turd on the Run. Look, this one's not my favorite. It's one that kind of blends into the rest of the album to me. It, it's very blues-based. It's not bad. There's no real bridge. And there's no real solo. It seems to me this was a jam that got to stage B but didn't go to stage C. And like, well, it's a good jam. Let's just put it on. Yeah. What do you want to call this thing? I don't know. Turd on the run. <laughs> that kind of sounds too like maybe that was like the working title. Right. And then yeah, we can't think of anything else. What I really like about this is the Charlie Watts, the brushes that he uses. Mm-hmm. I love that. It doesn't, if you overuse it, it sounds hack. But on this song, it sounds really cool. Just a nice change of pace for him. Yeah, I mean, Charlie does great on all the Stones records, really. I mean, I know once in a while, Charlie's vibe just wasn't there for whatever reason, and they would have to bring somebody in, or Jimmy's like, I'm just going to do this myself because I know what I want. But mm-hmm. for the most part, Charlie's Charlie's right on, you know, and, and there's no doubt he is on this one, too. This one's just like, it's kind of short. It's a nice jam. There's just not that much there to me. Right. You know? Yeah. And it, but it, but it's a, it's one that you wouldn't skip, though. You would still listen to it, even though it's not your favorite. Well, yeah. And what, I don't know. Is it two and a half minutes? Two, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's not very long. You know, you go take a piss if you have to. Whatever. You know? <laughs> but but it gets into then Ventilator Blues, which is Mick Taylor's only co-write on the album. And I, I got to say, this is a pretty cool song, man. Yeah. Yeah, this now we're now we're getting into like the the Howlin' Wolf, Muddy Waters. This is what these guys always wanted to be. Let's let's face it; they really wanted. They didn't want to be white guys from England. They wanted to be black guys from the South of the United States. And then they're kind of channeling that that love of you know listening to those records as little kids. I don't know where they got their hands on it, but you know you listen to it and you just that spark goes off in your head. This is what music is supposed to sound like. And I don't know what the Rolling Stones would have sounded like had they let Taylor off the chain a little more, but you kind of get a little, you get a little taste of it here. And he sounds great. And, you know, you've got, you've got uh, Hopkins and Keys on this one also, uh, along with everybody else. And yeah, this, this song, it's, it's real. It's one you're not going to hear on the radio ever, but it's awesome. Yeah. And I still can't really make out the lyrics very well. I could get them now. I mean, I I can read them because it's all so well documented. But listening to it, I can't really make out what he says very well. Again, he's kind of using his voice as the instrument. Great piano and keys. And apparently Bobby Whitlock is on the Wurlitzer. Like, Nicky might be on the piano, but Bobby's on the Wurlitzer. Bill was on this one. Keith wasn't around, even though he kind of gets the co-writing credit or something. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's all very murky about what was really happening. Yeah, and it kind of fades into at the end. I just want to see his face, and but but I mean, killer good blues song and great slide work, good good jamming from Mick T. But yeah, it's just Charlie and Mick Taylor with I guess Bobby Whitlock around. You know, he he's say, well, I really deserve credit for this. I mean, 
Keith gets writing credit. He wasn't even there. You know, he's like passed out for two days or something. I'm like, yeah, well, Bobby. And I guess what Bobby's most famous for being in the in the dominoes. Is that probably accurate? I think so, yeah. Yeah. But hey, look, if he played on it, that's really cool. So then next is uh is Let It Loose with Nikki back on the Mellotron. And uh look, people love this one, but Mix like the lyrics aren't really meaningful. It's like they ramble and we kind of pick and choose some stuff like that, but the girls sing a little bit on there. It's a very gospely kind of song, Let It Loose. Yeah, and I, I wrote down, I think Mick was born to sing like this. It just sounds like he's just, it, it, this particular structure fits his voice so well. He's, he's up there. I mean, could he have been a, a preacher in another lifetime? Probably. I oh, mean, yeah. he's just got that charisma, like, you know, we're all here today to, you know, celebrate it, it, it just sounds great. It just sounds like he's. It, it sounds effortless to me on this on this track. Him singing. Yeah, Joel Osteen would have nothing on Mick Jagger, man. His no. Mick's congregation would be huge. And yeah, he really does. On my notes, but he takes a turn to belt out a few on this one, you know. And the girls are really good on it too, doing their yeah. backup thing. But that gives him license to kind of then belt it out in his masculine way while they're doing it their kind of sweet background way, man. It, it really kind of comes together nice. And it's a long song, more than five minutes. I mean, it's about the longest track there is, you know. Yeah, you got everybody. Yeah, I've got I've got Nicky Hopkins, piano, and Mellotron on this. And, and the Mellotron really brings more of the churchy vibe to it. You, you think you're sitting in a church listening to this. Well, now, and, and we got to back up for just a second because I kind of – Sure. I conflagrated. Is that a word? Conflated? Oh, easy. Okay, yeah. One of those two words is right, I think. (laughs) Ventilator Blues fades into I Just Want to See His Face. And that's the one where Bobby Whitlock was on the Wurlitzer and Keith wasn't there. For years, without looking at the the songs, I thought that that Ventilator Blues and I Just Want to See His Face are all one song. Same song? Yeah, yeah. Because it it, it, fades from one to the other. They are distinctly different songs. There are different people playing on these songs. So Ventilator Blues, great with Mick and Keith together. No Keith on I Just Want to See His Face. And it's it's really kind of just a jam that maybe there's a little bit of lyric on. And some good heavy Charlie drumming and Mick Taylor jamming, I suppose it is. But that's because, you know, there are 18 songs. There's kind of 17 because this is kind of the same song. They kind of run together, but they're not. They're distinct songs. And, of course, Bobby Whitlock believes one of them was a co-write for him. But it didn't work out that way for you, Bob. <laughs> Sorry there, Bob. All right. Coming to the home stretch, Jackson. All right, here we go. And usually, you know, on a double album, say, well, there's four songs to go. We've already done three sides of a double LP there can't be anything good left. There, there must just be filling it with stuff that almost became B-sides, right? Mm-hmm. Wrong, wrong, <laughs> wrongity wrong, okay? They start off with what might be their best dirty, train, chugging, rocking, blues slide song ever with All Down the Line, okay? Now, this is an awesome, awesome song. However, on the record, it does not capture it quite like they do it live. It's just a tad slow. And look, that's that's not uncommon for something to be on the record one speed. And then when you play it live, you play it a little faster. That, that not, not just for the Rolling Stones, for any band, right? That's just kind of part of the way music works. But this song, here's the thing too. When they made this record, they did a world tour, 72, 73 world tour. It kind of was billed as the beginning of modern touring. 
because in the 60s, it was just like the chicks screamed, they tried to play over them, and then they ran away. That's all the 60s really were. That's why the Beatles basically quit touring, because it's like, right. we take a lot of crap in America. All the girls do is scream. The 72 tour was like, okay, now you're going to charge a little bit more, and you're going to play arenas and stadiums and things like that. And people, yeah, they're going to be cheering stuff, but they're also going to sit down and listen a little bit more. They're not a bunch of teenagers. Now they're in their late 20s. The band's starting to get in their 30s. Wyman was probably 35 at this point, right? So, you know, they're it, it's a more mature audience, and, and the show needs to be better. And some of the bootlegs and some of which they released, like the Brussels Affair and things like that. This song in particular jumps out live. It is so good. It is Mick Taylor really showing off the fact that he is a wonderkin, somebody really special on that slide guitar. He can play great blues guitar, no doubt. But with that slide in his hand, I there are very few that I would compare to Mick Taylor on this track, on this record, in this era... And all down the line is unbelievably good live. And I think he was the big reason why, and I had a very long, drunken argument about this, I think Thanksgiving time maybe, about mm -hmm. how this is the greatest period in the Rolling Stones. I love Brian Jones. Yep. I love Ron Wood. Right, but him. Mick Taylor is just, when once he gets going, he is just phenomenal. Especially. They kind of let him off the chain. Yeah, and then, right, th this is... This is a great, this is one of those songs too where you just, for whatever reason, you know that. Like you listen to it and you're like, man, I bet this sounds killer live. I bet when they play this, they can really get into it. And you're right. There are records that I can think of where it's the fourth side of the double album and you're just out of gas. Right. Out of material, I'm out of gas. Here's a couple more songs. There you go. You want the third ballad? Yeah, here's the third ballad, right? Yeah, here's something I wrote, you know, in the bathtub 10 years ago, whatever. There you go. This is not the case. Yeah, this is a great song. And yeah, you're right. You get that chugging. Hear the diesel drumming. Yeah. Hear the women sighing. Hear the children crying. All down the line. There's great backing vocals on it. There's great Keith riffing on it. There's Mick Taylor just sliding that thing up and down. It sounds amazing. And, and yeah, any live bootlegs you get from that era, you hold on to them. I had an amazing live Brussels that ended up getting stolen. Now, they did end up releasing that like officially, but but I just liked the idea that I had the, the bootleg and it was in such, it yeah. just sounded so good. Now, I also have an official live release, Some Girls Live in Texas, which is I think 78 or so. Okay. And it's really fast. Like, you could tell the Coke was flowing during this <laughs> tour, you know. Like, this one is really amped up a notch. But Ronnie is obviously in the band at that point, and Ronnie was really spot on. He was really kind of choking that thing, really killing it. Even Mick's like, yeah, go, Ronnie. He's like, oh, that's awesome. Like, you hear Mick praising him in the middle of the song, like, ooh, yeah, that's actually pretty damn good, kid. You know, like, keep that up. But it was so fast. I'm like, oh, my God, how much blow did they do before they went on stage this <laughs> night? It's like I can almost smell it coming off the amps. <laughs> oh, we need to hurry up because we got about 10 more minutes and then everybody's going to crash here. going to blow back up, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I, I love it. And, and, of course, it wasn't a hit. They never played on the radio. And they probably shouldn't just because it, it's just a tad slower than I want to hear it compared to how I've heard it live over the years. Mm. 
but it's it's amazing, and I I love it. It's one of the true gems of this album. Yeah, and, and it is weird that it's buried this far down in here. But I think to to your point before, I think that it's almost like it's consciously different. This is a different. We've switched gears now. Like if you took this and put it in one of the first couple of songs, you're like wait, that doesn't go with the rest of these. Now we've switched gears to the to more of the blues, mm-hmm. dirty blues section of the performance that's right and, and a little gospel too this yeah. may not be a pure gospel song it may have some gospel overtones some songs about trains going through the country yeah there's gonna be some country blues gospel stuff in there you know it, it's just i love it you get to the next one stop breaking down that's a robert johnson tune which they have to rework a bit but keep, keep, uh, mick has a woo at the beginning that has a little bit of an effect on it uh, and then i think the harmonic he plays may have that same kind of effect on it in the middle there it's got a little something on it that you can't just recreate without some kind of technological help there but it, it's kind of a dirty blue song which you would you expect from robert johnson but i, I do yeah. like this one yeah yeah it's a little more upbeat i think there was a whole deal about how at this point in time like yeah robert johnson wrote it but isn't it public domain now no you still owe money for that so i'm glad that i mean now they've taken care of that it is credited to him yeah i, I have mick taylor on the slide again yep. it's just he just sounds phenomenal he's grooving this one more slide for Taylor. Yeah, this could almost be like the Mick Taylor side to me, if you ask right. me, because he's so amazing on All Down the Line. He does some great work here, especially in the middle. And then the third song, Shine a Light, that's a gospel song if I ever heard one. But what Mick Taylor adds to this, now look, Billy Preston plays both the organ and the piano on this. Billy is special, and, and he really makes the song. But what Mick Taylor does here, it's not a lot. He doesn't have a long solo. He doesn't really show off. It fits the song perfectly well. But the stuff he puts in in the solo and at the end is very special. It's like, again, this could be Mick Taylor's side of the record. This is awesome, an awesome gospel stone song. Yes, absolutely. And I've got a note here that Taylor played electric guitar and bass on this one. I, I don't know. I mean... It, I don't, it, it said, okay, so there's a quote here, played the bass, quite a few things I played bass on, I used the Fender Jazz bass when Bill wasn't there, he was late, and nobody bothered to wait, usually happened a lot, actually, I don't mean there was anything, I don't mean that Bill was late a lot, we just didn't always get there at the same time, and if we felt like playing, we would, so, I don't, it's, it's a great groove on this one, there's nothing against Bill Wyman, but I mean, it's one of those things, if you're feeling it, do it. Right. And, and this is one of those that fell into ABCO because they did this at Olympic Studio with Leon Russell on the piano, you know. And it's like just, just another amazing piano player who played on this record. And I think it's a tribute to Brian Jones. You know, it was originally called Can't Get a Line okay. on You, and which is kind of like, yeah, you're going line for line with you is going to kill us all, you know. I mean, we this is just not going to work out kind of thing. And so it's kind of a tribute to him. And they worked on it in a few different spots. But to me, this is so good. And what Billy does with it is really impressive. But again, God, I mean, you could play this in church. You could play this in a rock stadium. It could almost bring a tear to your eye because, you know, it's this odd little thing at the beginning that I thought might have been the end of Stop Breaking Down. It's just Mick and a little piano chord at the beginning, right? It's just a... Yeah. You know, and then the bass drums come in. It's like, here comes the jam in the middle. Like, okay, yeah, now we're now we're grooving. There's chorus. They stop. They pull it back. They slow it down. And they get to grooving again. And then that's when Taylor gets to do his special thing with that. They slow it down. 
They bring it back in. It just it just fits. It's just such a good song. And of course, Martin Scorsese called it Shine a Light, the movie he did of them in New York. Right. That might have been at the Beacon. It was it, or it was at some small place in New York. It wasn't at like Madison Square Garden or nothing like that. No, I think it, it might have been the Beacon. Yeah, tiny little place. I always thought that was cool. Of all the of all the titles that you could have used, that was that's a cool wink to the back catalog. Yeah, and they played it obviously, you know. So because um, Chuck Revell can play most of all that stuff, so that's really cool. Now, honestly, to me, that should have been the last song on the album. The last song on the album is "Soul Survivor." Now, look, it's a good song. The lyrics are kind of cool. The fact of the matter is, after "Shine a Light," I'm emotionally spent. I don't have anything else to give. You know, I can cry during that song. And I'm like, you're going to say me there's more? Now, that doesn't mean it shouldn't be on the album. They could have put that a couple of songs ahead on this side. And I kind of like the way they, they, they do the chord changes where they come back and forth a couple of times between the major and minor stuff. I think it's actually pretty cool. And the yeah. girls are great on it. But again, I'm, I'm done. Okay, I'm done after Shine a Light. I can't, I can't take anymore. I need to go do something else. Or I need to hear it again. I need to hear that song again, you know? I almost thought when I heard this, uh, I hadn't heard this song for a long time. The, the beginning of that almost sounds like you recycled that for Rockin' a Hard Place on uh, Steel Wheels. I'm like, oh, we're going to hear that again a little bit. Mm. Interesting. But yeah, I, I agree with you. After after Shine a Light, yeah, it's you haven't been beat up, but you kind of left it, you kind of left it all hanging out there. And right. then, oh, there's another song left. Oh, okay, I'll listen to that. Yeah, not bad. And just because we have to do this, not the Asia song, Soul Survivor. A little different, because totally Asia, different. we work Asia into every show, That's folks. Right. Correct. <laughs> Waited an hour and 15 minutes to hear, what are they going to bring up Asia? There it is. There it is. <laughs> you're listening, fun. Jeff Downs. There's your, there's your plug. <laughs> there's your plug. Can't wait to have there's you on the show. Take, there's an alternate take that Keith does on the on the lead vocals on this one. It's okay. I mean, I don't I don't love it. Yeah, I think I think this this song probably gets a little bit doesn't get is a little bit of the redhead stepchild because it's at the end and after all the rest of these great songs. And after but Shine nothing Light, against yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Now and and look, you know, there, there's some B sides. The, the reissue included a lot of stuff that wasn't released now. Like you said, there's a there's the alternative take on Soul Survivor. There's a different take for All Down the Line. And then there's some like So Divine, Good Time Woman, Dancing in the Light, Follow the River, Plunder My Soul. There's a lot of songs I'm not going to get into because we just don't have time. And I, you know, look, I never bought the, uh, the remaster. I'm actually glad. It's fine to celebrate a 30th anniversary, 40th, 50th, whatever. Those are kind of excuses. Like, all right, well... I'm not going to make any new records. What do I do? Well, let's reboot an old record. Okay, well, on an anniversary, people fall for that. I'm glad that they put it out. You know, it wasn't the 40th. It was like the 38th year. You know, it, it came out. It wasn't like, oh, after 40 years, we're doing this. So I don't think there's going to be a 50th or anything like that. And like we said, Goat's Head Soup, that came out last year, the year before, with uh, Scarlet with Jimmy Page on it and some other stuff. Tattoo You may have been a 40th kind of a thing. Um, but they're not beholden to, okay, on these round numbers, we're going to do it. It's like, no, when it makes sense, when we have time, when we go back and look at this stuff, we'll clean it up and, and we'll do it when it makes sense for us. So like... I respect the Stones for that. Well, I mean, the other thing too, you got to figure they're they're far from being done with anything. I mean, they're still touring the world. So yeah, it's, it's whenever you can, whenever you've got a free moment to work it into your schedule. Yep. And so, hey, but let's hope they keep doing it because uh, you know, like we said, we like to do these 
anniversaries for us. It's just a good way to say, wow, it's been 50 years of exile on Main Street. That, that's amazing, you know, or it's been, you know, 40 years of pyromania or, you know, something that was big to us. It's like, wow, that's really been out however many years. So it's a good time to kind of step back and, and, and evaluate these things. And I mean, in the canon of Stone's records, as much as I love Let It Bleed, it'd be hard for me to put anything ahead of this. Right. And and anything that's come after it, I'm not saying they haven't made great records and great tracks after this came out, but I think this was the apex of them creatively. I think it really did help that you had these guys hanging around mm-hmm. that could jump in when they when the spirit moved them and not just, like I said, bring them in for a for a specific track. Yeah, it for as much of a disaster as I'm sure it was to go through, they came up with some pretty great material. You know, Some Girls is, is awfully good, uh, and it was mm-hmm. right kind of at the end of Keith's heroin problem we like tattoo you because it has songs that we knew growing up but that was yep. not that was less of a session that was more of like okay we got a few from 72 we had a couple from 78 we got one today you know they kind of cobbled all that together and everything from that point on was either a disaster or it was uh it's it's, it's good like i like steel wheels and I like a lot of Bridges to Babylon, you know. There's some good stuff on Voodoo Lounge. But I'm never going to say, all right, let's listen to Voodoo Lounge instead of this. That's crazy. You know, that's nuts. No. You know? Yeah, no. You you might, yeah, you're right. You might get to one of those after you've listened to this. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, this is the Stones of their Apex. You got Mick Taylor. Keith isn't completely useless because of the drugs. Wyman's still contributing. They've got six, seven, eight. I mean, how many different piano players? They got Nicky Hopkins. They got Leon Russell. I think Dr. John played on, when they were in LA, played on some tracks. By the way, when I saw the Stones at the Aragon during that the small theater part of it, Dr. Yep. John opened for them. Wow. And he came out and played a, a couple with them, you know, so that's awesome. You got Bobby Whitlock around. You got Ian Stewart, Nicky Hopkins. I mean, you know, who doesn't play piano on this? Does Elton John play on this record? He might have, you know. <laughs> He's in the south of France. He was probably hanging around there somewhere. Yeah, maybe Rick Wakeman was on this record. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh grumpy Rick. <laughs> Well, there is our review of Exile on Main Street after 50 years, at least 50 years coming up in May of 2022, that we've had this Stone's Gem masterpiece only double album they ever made available and part of the Stone's catalog. I got to tell you, it holds a lot of love for me. So many great tunes and a lot of different styles, straight up rock, country, soul, gospel, lots of blues in there, and just a tour de force for Mr. Mick Taylor. Maybe not on every song, but some real gems in there. And all the amazing piano players they had on here, either writing songs or on the album, be it Leon Russell, Billy Preston, Nicky Hopkins, Ian Stewart, Dr. John, so many amazing contributors to this album. As they were tax exiles, stuck in the south of France, well, I should say stuck. <laughs> There's a lot worse places to be. But in the south of France, waiting for Keith to come down out of his heroin stupor to provide them with some riffs. Seems like maybe it was a tough time for the Stones, but out of it came just an amazing record. Anyway, I messed up a couple things with Bobby Whitlock, but at the end of the day, look, the Stones created a masterpiece. No matter who played on which songs, no matter who actually wrote or contributed each part, this is the quintessential Stones album. And everything that came after it, though, they made It's Only Rock and Roll. 
Goat's Head Soup, Black and Blue, Some Girls, Tattoo You, Steel Wheels, Stone Song, records that I love and will always love. This is it. This is the number one, I would say, Stone's album. I love Let It Bleed. Sticky Fingers is great. But to me, this is the one that all Stone's albums and really all great rock blues albums are judged against. Now, we hope you liked that one. And if you did, hey, give us a shout out. Go out and give us a review wherever you get our podcast. You can give five stars on Spotify now. Apple's always great. Good Pods is a fantastic way to go find independent podcasts and connect with listeners all around the world. But wherever you do, hey, if you enjoyed it, give us a shout out. And if you send it to us, we might just read it on the show. And as usual, we want you to subscribe and download wherever you get your podcast. And you can check out all past episodes on all social media at www.uglyamericanwerewolf.libsyn.com. Now, on the next show, we've got something really special for you. If you listen to our Best of 2021 episode, you know that we had a blast talking with Neil from At Death Let Pod. He's a liver puddlian who's a huge Def Leppard fan and runs a great Def Leppard podcast. We had him on last fall to review Hysteria, and we just had a blast. And both Jackson and I ranked his episode as our number one episode of the year. Well, we don't know that many Def Leppard albums, but the Beatles' Get Back movie, which was cobbled together by Peter Jackson here and came out around the holidays, was kind of earth-shattering. It's really an amazing experience even for folks who don't consider themselves to be very big Beatles fans. So after watching it a few times, we decided we'll review this amazing movie, this amazing docu-series about the band that really started it all with someone from their hometown, from Liverpool, who, like us, may not be a huge Beatles fan, but that's okay. To watch the documentary, you have to be impressed. You have to gain some incredible insights what you see from this band that's kind of been shoved down your throat your whole life. I think you'll enjoy this episode with me and Jackson and Neil. We had a lot of fun, again, recording it, and a lot of great stuff came out of it. So be sure to tune into that. That will be out soon. And we've got some fun interviews and other guests lined up that I know you're going to love. So stay tuned out there. And for all you rock fans all around the world, be cool and stay safe. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.